Katie's Ogrophy. I saw her standing on her front lawn, just a twirling her baton. Me and her went for a ride, People from the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, with a sawed off 14 on my lap through the badlands of Wyoming. I killed it. Welcome to Edisography and a bit of a bonus episode, a kind of odds and sods interview compendium, really. I did an interview with uh, engineer Toby Scott, who basically worked on every Bruce Springsteen project from the end of Darkness on the Ridge of Town through to the 2000s. And I did an audio commentary with him for Born in the USA, which I'm very excited about. And we, we spoke twice because uh, we ran out of time the first time because he had another appointment, so we only decided one of the album. So we, we spoke again later in the week and ended up speaking for over three hours. So if you extract the 46 minutes of Born in the USA, that would leave quite a bit left over. Um, and I knew there was stuff that I wasn't going to use, but I didn't want to stop because it was interesting. So um, I thought I would siphon some of these bits off and give them to you now uh, and then edit the audio commentary later because that'll take a bit of time. So there's some stuff on the recording and mastering of Nebraska and then beyond that, all kinds of bits about the album credits um, transcribing the lyrics and then working on the later albums so um, enjoy this taster of the chat I had with the great Toby Scott this is the start of the interview in 82 Bruce started working on a bunch of demos he told his guitar tech Mike Batlin to go out and find a, some sort of a recorder that he could do more than just two tracks on something with like four tracks so that he could add a harmony vocal or an additional guitar. So he went out and found a uh, Tascam, I think it's 144. It's a little cassette deck that records four tracks of audio. And he got that and a couple of Shure SM57 microphones. And uh, they set up in the bedroom at Bruce's house and proceeded to record, I don't know, 15, 17 songs. They completed that during the course of, I believe, January, February. And um, then I ran into them uh, sort of somewhat accidentally in, I believe, March or April of that year, where I had been away on vacation for most of January and February. That's out of Los Angeles. I was skiing. And I came back to mix a uh, album for a French artist that I had done previously. And when I got uh, into the studio, this was Clover Studios in Los Angeles, I was informed that the guy had called in and canceled the session. So I had nothing to do. But then Chuck Plotkin saw me and said, oh, geez, are you busy? And I wouldn't know. And so he said, well, Bruce and Steve Van Zant are coming into town and they want you to mix a record. Said, okay. And so I then for the next, I don't know, probably two, three weeks or so, I mixed uh, a record that Bruce and Steve had produced. Gary U.S. Bonds, On the Line, was the record. 
uh, they loved it, and Steve loved it, and he said, well, will you mix mine? And he had been recording uh, his first album, Men Without Women, and so I started to mix that. And after a few days of mixing, and Steve was pleased with the mixes and everything, Bruce was getting kind of itchy. And so he asked if we could transplant ourselves back to New York City. And I said, well, yeah, I can probably mix back there. I had mixed another album in New York, I don't know, a year earlier or a couple of years earlier. So we moved back to New York City. And at that time, uh, I believe that was probably around late March, April sometime of 1982, and we, we started recording, and the first song that we recorded was Born in the USA. I forget whether we even heard the demo, but uh, Bruce had done a, a two-track demo on this cassette. And we did Born in the USA, and then that went on. And then it turned out that uh, we, we went rather quickly to arrive at something that was ready to be mixed. I did a few mixes, and then Bruce was like, oh, no, 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 I want to do something else. He explained that he had made these demos and that some of them he intended on being the full band. One of the songs was Born in the USA, which is the only one that we had done, although we had recorded, I don't know, probably 15 songs or so by that time. And he said, and others are just sort of a solo thing, maybe me with one or two of the band instruments. And so he said, well, I want to, you know, sort of change and address some of these. So that's when we started on Nebraska. And he tried to reproduce his performance of quite a few of the songs, never could get it to his satisfaction to sound quite right. And so then we started thinking, well, maybe we can use, do remixes off of the cassettes. So we transferred the cassette onto a big multi-track tape and tried various things and finally didn't work. And it came to a point in the studio where, we had probably been doodling around with that record for, I don't know, three weeks or more. And uh, Bruce, I remember him standing at the far side of the control room, and he goes, well, geez, we can't seem to get it right, but I sure do like this one. Toby, what's the chance of us mastering off of this? And he pulls out of his pocket, which he had been carrying around in his front jeans pocket for probably months, a cassette, which was his two-track cassette mixdown from the uh, four-track cassette deck. And I said, yeah, sure, we can do it. And so he tosses it, goes, well, what do we do? I said, first of all, give it to me so I can transfer it onto a better medium than that cassette. And so we did. Then we proceeded to spend, oh, probably at least two weeks uh, trying to get it mastered. And uh, we did finally get it mastered. We finished it all up and we were done. And the 31st of July, Chuck and I flew back to Los Angeles to start another record, which we had committed to that started on the 1st or 2nd of August. I recollect we didn't have much time in between. We sort of finished one project, got on a plane, flew to Los Angeles, 
And then the next day, started another project. And then it wasn't until uh, February of 83 that Bruce said, well, I want to get back in there and do something. I find the Nebraska thing fascinating. That <clears throat> So it's always been this, 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 this story of Springsteen had this tape in his back pocket. And you're saying that's literally true. He literally pulled out a cassette of all the demos. Yes. And that was what you used to master, yes. make the album. Now, that sounds like yeah. a really complicated process to get that sounding like finished album quality. Was it difficult? Well, it was difficult <clears throat> to get the two-track master, which was this cassette, to be able to play back on a vinyl record and for it to be what Bruce wanted and what he heard you know, when you stick the cassette into a cassette deck and play it back, like, oh, this is what it sounds like. And there was a number of issues that we discovered along the way that made this cassette unique. Mike did a pretty good job of recording it. There was only one little background vocal or something, I think, that had a little distortion on it, but you can't really tell. They mixed it down through a, or using a, I think it was a Gibson or a Gretsch echoplex type device and they mixed it onto a as i remember panasonic sort of a ghetto blaster it was a you know a speakers cassette deck everything all in one you carry it around it was the size of a very fat big briefcase and they mixed it down on that and that machine had had a little bit of history uh in that it wasn't the greatest machine in the world i won't go into all the details of it but they mixed it down to that. And then when we uh, got it and it was then put under the scrutinizing eye of Bob Ludwig or ear of Bob Ludwig, he found that the uh, the two-track master was out of asthma. And so he put in into one of his machines and adjusted that machine so that the asthma was proper for the playback of a tape. And he did that. And then he, I think he cut it onto a disc. And Bruce didn't like that sound. That that wasn't what he heard. That clarity and everything was wrong. He wanted so it, it to was sound, too clear. Yes, he wanted it to sound like that. You know, like that original cassette. You know, I understood all of this having gone through this issue at least two times prior to that. Uh, once was when I was mixing the river. I think the song was either "Fade Away" or "Wreck on the Highway," where Bruce wanted this dark mystery sort of sound and and i w was mixing and finally gave him a mix which he was listening over cassettes at that time and uh, he said yeah that's it this is great so i went back into the control room to do a another mix of it and i had them change the delay tape uh, at the time there was minimal digital equipment. Uh, I mean, I was mixing to a Sony 3324, not a 30, uh, no, 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 1600 or a 1610 at the time. So that was digital. And I think that I had a Publison and harmonizers, but you still used a tape machine for what we call delay to chamber, if you understand what that means. Anyway, I had been using this delay to chamber tape for hours. And so there it's like, okay, now I'm ready. Now I can record the masters, change that tape. We changed the tape. I took the resulting mix up to Bruce and he said, no, it's all wrong. It's screwed up. What'd you do? And I went, oh, 
The only thing I did was put a new reel of tape on the delay to chamber machine. And I knew then that the problem was the tape on the delay to chamber tape machine had worn out so much that all the high end was gone off of the tape. And that was giving this dark atmosphere to the send into the reverb units that uh, made what he wanted to be the sound of the mix. And so I, uh, I went back down to the studio and pulled that old funky delay tape out, put it on, ran tone through it of every frequency from you know, 50 hertz, 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, everything else. And I created the playback curve of that worn out tape and then put a new tape on the machine, but this time going either into the machine or out of it, I put an equalizer that recreated that worn out tape sound. And it, it took a few tries, but I finally got it so that I could use a new reel of tape and make it sound like an old reel of tape. Wow. And uh, that made, that was the sound he wanted. And then the, at the time following that was between uh, the Gary U.S. Bonds record, Bruce had been listening to all of the songs on a cassette. Now, Clover Studios was a one-room studio, and there was no real lounge there was just a room with a pinball machine and a coffee machine, and then the control room and then the studio. But upstairs were the offices, and we had a lounge up there where there was a, a couch and chairs, and there might have been a TV, but there, we had a stereo up there. And uh, so I would do a mix of whatever it was, and then I'd run upstairs or give it to the assistant, and he'd run it upstairs, and they'd play it back over the stereo off of the cassette. And they were using pretty good cassette machines. Everything was set up optimally, and I don't record extremely hot, so I wasn't getting any you know, tape compression or other uh, uncontrollable effects on the cassette sound. So anyway, he'd go up and was like, yeah, this is it. That's the master. And so we got all of them, and he picked all the master songs for the album, and then we put it onto a cassette, and he listened to them all the way through. He went, that's great. The next day, Chuck Plotkin takes it out and takes it to a mastering facility, and the kid masters it and brings it back, and Bruce listens to it, this time off of a vinyl LP. I guess acetate is what it was at the time. Uh, listens to it and goes, no, you guys are wrong. You're screwed <laughs> up. You're using all the wrong mixes. And we go, no, 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 the, 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 these are the masters. And he goes, no, 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 this is all completely wrong. So we couldn't figure out. We kept insisting, no, Bruce, these are the masters. And he goes, no, they're not. It does not sound right. So we adjourned for the day. And the next day, Chuck went out. And this time he comes back uh, from the mastering facility with two acetates. And he puts one on. And Bruce listens to it. And he goes, okay, yeah, these are all the wrong mixes. This, these are not right. These, these don't sound right. Then he puts on another acetate. Bruce listens and goes, yeah, these are the right mixes. This is it. Great. You guys, you finally did it. And Chuck goes, they're the same mixes. The only difference is, is that the one that you don't like was mastered from the half-inch master two-track tape. And the one that you do like was mastered from a cassette that we transferred the master two-track onto a cassette 
and then put it from the cassette back onto a two track because you need a preview head to master stuff. And so it was like, okay, well, let's go with that. So we literally mastered the entire record off of a cassette copy. Wow. So when it came time to Nebraska, it's like, well, this is old news. <laughs> we know that he wants a sound, and we and the sound that he wants is the sound of, you know, a bad job of recording or, you know, worn out tape. So from cassette to master, the cassette to the final version. Yeah. Yeah. And clever. so, uh, you know, like I'd said, uh, Ludwig had adjusted the azimuth on it and he got it right. No, then, no, no, no. So we went back and, uh, Ludwig and, oh, geez, two or three other mastering engineers could not get it to play back off of an acetate. In other words, they would cut the uh, the record onto an acetate, but then you play it back and it's either sound distorted or we'd get skips or various things and just it wasn't working. And these were some of the very sophisticated mastering people in the business you know bob ludwig was our favorite guy and then uh, another kid steve Markusen, who worked out in los angeles i think bernie grunman probably had a shot at it and uh maybe doug Sachs. you know these are and oh we might have done it ran it ran it past uh one of the who was it greg colby at sterling anyway with it's just like hey we want the guy that can get this to go onto the disc the disc sounds good and it doesn't skip. And none of these guys could. And then finally, Chuck heard about Atlantic Records had a mastering room that had not been upgraded in years, I guess, or something like that. And so he took it by there. And the mastering engineer was a guy named Dennis King. And I think Dennis had to manually master it. When I say manually master it, part of the trick of mastering is getting the length of music that you want onto the acetate, vinyl, lacquer, whichever one you're, you know, I guess an acetate is what you're listening to for a test, but uh, to getting it on there so that the grooves are as deep as possible to get the maximum volume, but yet they're still far enough apart so that the, the needle doesn't skip from one side to the other. Well, the Neumann lathes, which was pretty much the standard of the industry, this was all done kind of by the lathe, you know, and it would adjust the depth and the width in between the groove. And Dennis's lathe didn't do that. I think he had to adjust it, you know, and as it went along, he would, you know, turn a knob and the it would get a little bit further apart. In any event, Dennis was able to get it to play back just great. And so... And then the problem was is that we they Bruce didn't like whatever EQ or compression or whatever Dennis had done. And so we got Bob Ludwig to consent to tell Dennis what outboard gear to gear to use to compress it, equalize it, and do whatever else he had done to it. Because we liked the sound of Bob's, but he couldn't get it on disc. And so it turned out that it was Bob Ludwig's equalization and compression parameters and Dennis King actually putting it onto the disc at uh, Atlantic Records. You know, I think for your purpose, it would probably be interesting if I had my uh, database, which uh, I, I I have it, but I don't have it with me. And my, my database stopped four years ago when I parted company with Bruce. I still have a copy of it because they occasionally 
call me up and say, hey, what about this or that? And I use it as a reference to be able to tell you, oh, well, that was take two or take three or take five or whatever. It was. So your database lists every single take of every single song that he recorded, basically. Yes. Yeah. Do you have copies of it or is it just a list of the actual the information? What do you mean? Do you actually have the songs? So you, if it says take you have six takes of this song, do you have the six takes as well to access to listen to? Uh, in some cases, yes. Right. Uh, I, I have been sort of the archivist for Bruce since 1985 when uh, he would ask me for copies of songs. He'd say, hey, I did this song. Uh, what was the first one? Action. And he goes, I did this in 77 or something with the band. I think it was at the... You know, the hit factory or the record plant or something. Give me a copy of it. Well, I'd, I'd go and I'd track down a copy. And then I went into a Columbia Records library one time. And I said, well, I'm looking for this song. And they said, well, it may not be here. It may be up at Iron Mountain, which is a storage facility that they used. And uh, I asked to look through their inventory. Their inventory was five by seven index cards with Bruce Springsteen, the name on the top, and then a work order number, and then maybe the name of the song below it. It was really quite primitive and uh, ineffective. And that they basically found the songs by me telling them the name of it about when it was done, and they would, one by one, go through the reels. Wow. <laughs> uh, they, they Fortunately, at that point in time, he had only made three records, and there was a limited number of reels. When I, I created a database and had some programmers made it, make it up, and a couple of friends of mine and I got a room at Sony, and we inventoried every Bruce tape. And that was in 86, probably. And I kept adding to the database, you know, live. We generated a lot of reels and things like that. And when I transferred it from, what do you call it, Microsoft PC format into Macintosh format in 1991, there was 2,300 reels. So that means in 87, we had probably inventoried 1,500, maybe 1,000 reels. So we only had 1,000 reels. And the last time I checked when I left and looked at the inventory, there was like 8,000. But that's 8,000, not necessarily reels of tape because we changed over to Pro Tools and that would be a Pro Tools session. So it that may have been, you know, less, uh, in other just individual songs. And decide why. Hello, this is Derek Philpott, and I'd like to thank 80sography for letting us tell you about Dear Mr. Kershaw by Derek Philpott, which is a book of very silly letters to 80s pop legends about their songs with genuine, hilarious replies back from the actual artists themselves. It's available on Amazon, and lots of people have said very nice things about it. It includes Was Not Was Delamitri Nick Kershaw All About Eve, Kim Wilde, Yaz Level 42, Hazy Fantasy, Squeeze, Heaven 17, Youth Mix, Tears for Fears, Chesney Hawks, Catch a Goo Goo, Living in a Box, and many more, by which I mean a few more. was quite a lot more. Thank you very much. So too. On Born in the USA, and most all of them, and I didn't do it on the river, but on Born in the USA, uh, I believe, no, uh, I always submitted credits for who was the, you know, I was the engineer, and he, these are the people that were assistants, and we worked at this studio and that studio and stuff like that. And then uh, after Born in the USA came out, we did the live album, and I wrote 
all the credits for the live album. Now, they already had the lyrics, so they didn't need to worry about them, but they the live album credits, I wrote them all out. And I credited everybody. I mean, maintenance people at the studio and people that work for Sony uh, on the, the tape machines, the uh, digital tape machines and other stuff. In addition to all the assistant engineers and studios and people like that. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. I turned it into the, you know, the record company or management. And then I saw the record. And it was exactly word for word my credits all the way down the line, including the misspelling of one of the assistant engineer's name. <laughs> I, I spelled it W. E-I-R-T, it was Wertheimer, and I think I juxtaposed the E and the I. Oh, and I heard from him right away. <laughs> hey, geez, you spelled my name wrong. You know, I said, oh, geez, I am sorry, I didn't know. But uh, so then after that, I was very careful. And so this day, I'm still very careful about all the stuff because after that live album, then the next thing was Tunnel of Love which was strictly Bruce and I. And uh, we made that together. And uh, then he realized that he had a band and they weren't on it yet. And so we called the band in to basically try and play a better version of the parts that he had played for guitars, keyboards. I played all the drums on it on a drum machine and going down like that. But uh, the all the credits, and that's when I started... Uh, I made up all the credits, and then I also transcribe all of the lyrics so that he'll do a demo, and that night or the next day or something, I listen to it, and I type out in my computer the lyrics. So I have those. And every time on every album when I submitted the lyrics to Sony, Columbia, or management, or whoever, I always said, now this is my... What do you call it? Um, Interpretation? Yeah. And, and the lyrics were always correct. Yeah. I mean, Bruce and I went over them. I would have lyrics and then I go, hey, we got to verify these. And we would go through, we would listen to the song two and three times. And he would sometimes change the lyrics on paper, even though he had sung something differently. Just little tiny words like he or she or, you know, or whatever, uh, small words like that. It wasn't, wasn't personal he or she, but other words. Um, and uh, we had them correctly, but no, the uh, uh, the wraparound. In other words, when you look at the lyrics on any song, like uh, what's our next one? Bobby Jean. Bobby Jean, yeah. Okay, it goes, well, I came by your house the other day. Your mother said that you went away. She said, no, that I'm done. That wraparound from you went away to she said there was nothing that I could have done. Uh, on this one, I, I didn't do that. But that is what I mean about the wraparound. From Tunnel Love on, every lyric, that was what I said, this is where it needs to split and wrapped them around. Because Bruce writes continuously. In other words, he, he doesn't write it like prose or poetry with those wraparounds. He has a, uh, a college-ruled five-subject notebook that generally when he starts working on his next record, he uh, starts writing his songs in there. And he writes them out, it's probably not a word, but paragraphically. In right. other words, he just writes along until he comes to the end of the sheet of paper, and then he goes back to the next line. 
and writes along until he comes to the next sheet of paper and does that. When he sings it, obviously, there is some text rap, you know, verbally that he does. And I generally use that as my guideline. But there'll be times when I was going, oh, well, you know, this one will look better if it were like this or one thing and another. But, um, yeah, I wrote all the lyrics and did all the credits. So, and, so where you uh, see like two four-line verses and a four-line yes. chorus on a lyric sheet would yes. just be just one blurge of, of writing, just be one load of writing and one, one batch. You'd have to then decipher where is the verse, where does the second verse begin, where does the chorus begin? Right. No. Yeah. His is all continuous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that, that was one of my other hats of, of writing was transcribing the lyrics, and keeping track of that. And oh, I would keep track of every song that we recorded, what key it's in, what the tempo was, how the song evolved from the beginning to the end. And uh, I, I was quite diligent in keeping track of the songs. So if he does a duff vocal, are you able to say, Bruce, that was out of tune, that was terrible? Or even if you think a song's really bad, would you say, I don't think this one should go on the album? Or would it be just, this song's really good, let's work on this one kind of thing? uh, Yeah, no, uh, that doesn't happen because the songs get done one at a time. From Tongue of Love on, it was Bruce and I, and we would do a song, maybe a song a day. It doesn't take long. He zips right through them. Then after he's done all the songs that he wants to record, which can be Tunnel of Love was the fewest. I think we only recorded about 15 songs for Tunnel of Love, of which I think 12 were used. And then we added, uh, what was it? Uh, One Step Up was a a song after the initial recording. And uh, Tunnel of Love, the song, was added after the initial recording. And once we get the songs... Then Bruce has John Landau, who is his, you know, his mentor and what's the Italian tune, consigliere or something (laughs) like that. And Bruce pulls out what he's calling his album. And we may have recorded, uh, you know, 40 songs, but he presents, say, 12 of them to John and John listens and uh, says, oh, great, it sounds good, and like that, and is there anything else? And I forget which which album it was, uh, Ron Aniello's first album that he worked with us on in 2011, Wrecking Ball. Oh, Wrecking Ball, on 2012, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had recorded like 40 songs, and uh, this was at the end of 2010, like November, December, and John came in, listen to the song, said, oh, that's great. Is there anything else? And me having knowledge of all 40 songs, you know, Bruce would go, well, yeah, I got a few others. Trying to go, well, anything I should hear? Bruce, well, you know, sort of indifferent to it. And I'd say, well, what about this one? You know, a song that I liked and something like that. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we can play that for him. Well, play it for him. You know, and I had rough mixes of everything. So I'd play it for John. And finally, I, you know, between me sort of going, well, what about that one? I mean, you know, it adds up. And then uh, John was like, hey, well, geez, you know, Bruce, uh, listen to the extra songs that you didn't have as part of your album. Maybe we should rethink this. And, uh, you know, why don't we want to think of maybe this one and not that one and this, that, and the other. And Bruce, oh, well, gee, I hadn't thought of that. And so, uh, you know, that was something that takes place. And, uh, 
And when we when we went through that, the demos that I make with Bruce or that I had made with Tunnel of Love anyway, well, and all the ones through Brendan O'Brien, the demos were really good. Brendan O'Brien basically just had the band members replay everything, you know. But when uh, we did this, he played them back with stuff for uh, what became on Wrecking Ball. John Landau said, geez, you know, they're pretty good, but they could use some refining. Uh, you know, some of the guitar parts are a little not quite perfect and the piano and this, that, and the other thing. And it was all my finger tap virtual drums on everything. And so they they asked and said, geez, who can we get? And as I recollect, Bruce had left the room and John was going, Toby, who do you know that can produce this? And I suggested Ron Aniello. And he goes, who? You know, he didn't know who Ron was. I knew Ron because I had produced Ron's first record like 20 years earlier. But anyway, uh, he goes, who? And, and I told him. And then I guess it was a month later, John called me up and said, do you have a number for Ron? I said, yeah. So I called him up. And uh, geez, I think it was three weeks later, John goes, hey, your friend Ron is coming in. Give him every accommodation. And we started working in January of 80. Where was that? Uh, January of 2011, and uh, I, I see from the release, you know, January 2011, we started working on songs that became the Wrecking Ball album. And I'm sort of sort of getting off track here from... There's, yeah, ask one question about So those 20, because there's the extended version, has got 13 tracks. So those other 27 songs, were they retooled for later albums or is there still a load of unreleased songs from those sessions? Oh, they're still unreleased for those sessions. Yep, it's like you could, you could do a box set for pretty much every album, but Tunnel of Love, it seems. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I know that in the course of time of me having uh, parted company with them and not working out, I still keep in touch with Ron about what's going on. What are you doing? And he tells me, and uh, all I can say is there's plenty to come. Yeah, I'm pet. <laughs> okay, let's move <laughs> That's on. That's all I can say. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, um, it's because when uh, when Bruce and I got into recording, geez, for I think it was Ghost of Tom Joe, Devils and Dust, um, all of those, uh, the Wrecking Ball, and then after I've recorded probably two, three, or four series of what we call demos, which was just Bruce and I, him playing everything except the drums, and I play the drums, uh, groups of forty songs apiece. Oh my God. So there could be like from 80, 160 songs out there wow. that many of them have been created into albums like Devils and Dust came from that. The Wrecking Ball came from that. We recorded a lot of stuff, just he and I. And uh, then when Ron joined, joined the group, Ron was very good and he learned how we did it and like that. And then Ron was able to contribute because Ron is excellent on Pro Tools and he can play piano. He's an excellent guitar player. And he sort of practiced up, and now he can actually play drums. Drums well enough so that he can fix them and make them proper in uh, Pro Tools. But uh, Yeah, we should on. move up. If there's one song from all those 200-odd songs that have been unreleased, you wish he would release, what is the one song? You say, oh, he's definitely got to release Oh, jeez. Just name one song just to tantalize us and think, like, Wait till you hear this one. You'll love this one if you're a Bruce fan. Well, one of my favorites is one that it's out on YouTube or somewhere. Um, it's called Delivery Man. And it's Bruce 
just talking about this delivery guy. And it is hilarious. Mm. I mean, I find it hilarious. Uh, the delivery guy, uh, just to give you a synopsis of it, the delivery man is driving a flatbed truck filled with boxes of chickens, very much higher than the cab of the truck. They're tooling down the highway, and there's a low bridge. <laughs> and the rest of it is hilarious. based on a true story or anything is it no i no no, no. Okay. bruce is self-admittedly has never worked a day in his life <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, um but he knows what it is you know yeah. and uh you know i checked i asked him back when we were doing the river i said geez are you sort of a car guy because you're writing about all these songs he goes nope don't do a thing on them but he <laughs> goes just because i don't do it doesn't mean that i can't understand where the person's lifestyle and their whole mental ability is coming from I know. Absolutely. I've got a good point. That is the end of the interview. So that was an excerpt on a large interview to come with Toby Scott. Thank you to Toby for that interview. Uh, very excited to get the Born in the USA audio commentary out. It won't be the next episode, but it'll be very soon. Some really fascinating stuff on there. Um, so thanks again, Toby. Uh, you heard the ad for, for Dear Mr. Kershaw. Derek and Dave reached out to me on Twitter and um, they kindly gave me a PDF to an earlier one called Dear Mr. Popstar. Again, with, with uh, letters written to pop stars, taking lyrics literally and their genuine responses. And it's very funny. We got a response from Roland Orzabal of Tears of Fears, which is really good. And what if they took him up on his offer to have a pint, you know, while he spills and talk about the fuzzy. And, and former guest Martin Page on, of course, we built the city and it's really funny stuff so very happy to help promote uh, check that out eh, this is a bonus episode so um, I will love you and leave you squeaky uh, this Nebraska related cover of Reason to Believe by the Henry Girls the Henry Girls this is lovely and it adds fuel to my theory the best cover versions of songs by male songwriters are sung by women which is a really good cover so until next time Keep on gently rocking. Goodbye. A man stands over a dead dog Lying by the highway in a ditch He's looking down, kind of puzzled Poking that dog with a stick His car door flung open Standing out on Highway 31 Like if he stood there I'll get up and run It struck me kind of funny Seemed kind of funny, sir, to me Still at the end of every hard and day People find some reason to believe Now Mary Lou loved Johnny 
Well, sir, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. <laughs>